Good day. Today is March 20th, 2023, and this is Democracy Appalled. I'm your host, Rohan Mova. We're talking about democracy and its impact on the world. This show is all about democracy. This is Democracy Appalled. We're live from 1490 WWPRAM every Monday, 5 a.m. Eastern. If you have any questions about democracy, send us an email at democracyappalled at gmo.com, and we'll bring that topic in our next week's session. Remember, that email is democracyappalled at gmo.com. Let's take a look at our schedule for today. So we're going to go through our next point in understanding democracy, which is the current state of democracy globally, right? So in the previous episodes, we covered the history of democracy, the role of democracy in modern society, and the current state of democracy in the United States. So our fourth point is the current state of democracy globally. And in the next points, we'll cover the future of democracy and the relationship between democracy and the media. After that, after we cover the current state of democracy globally, we'll go through Iran's democracy's history, something that we couldn't touch on in last week's episode. Then we'll go through bank runs and a run on democracy. How are they connected? Let's see. And then finally, we'll go through current affairs, including the country of Georgia and a possible constitutional democracy happening in Israel. So let's get started. First, let's summarize the first two, three points that we covered in the previous episodes in our understanding of democracy. So that is the history of democracy. So we, we went through the ancient origins where we discussed the development of democratic ideas in ancient Greece, including the concept of citizenship, representation, and democracy. Then we went into modern democratic systems, right? So that includes the development of parliamentary systems in Europe, the spread of democratic ideals during the Enlightenment period, and then the impact of the American Revolution on the creation of modern democratic nations. And then for that first understanding of the history of democracy, we went through the spread of democracy. So we discussed the growth of democracy, uh, democratic movements in the 20th century, so the impact and the fall of the Soviet Union and the current state of democracy in different regions of the world. Then we went through the role of democracy in modern society. That's point number two, which is includes the impact on economic development. So how democracy has contributed to economic growth and stability. And then we went through countries like South Korea and Taiwan, right? And then we went through how democracy can play a role in human rights and protect in promoting it, including freedom of speech, religion, and assembly. Then we went through social equality, how democracy has helped to reduce social and economic inequality including examples of countries with strong social welfare systems like Scandinavia as an example. And then for our third point, we went through the current state of democracy in the United States. And through that, in understanding that, we went through political polarization, a thing that is grappling the United States. And we've discussed the growing divide between the political parties in the United States. Along with that, we discussed the impact of gerrymandering, media echo chambers, and the influence of money in politics. Then we went through, uh, when it came to the influence of money in politics, we discussed the role of campaign financing and the influence of special interest groups in shaping political decisions. Then we went to the challenges posed by new technologies, such as social media, big data, big tech, other technologies that are changing the political landscape, including the impact of misinformation and cyber attacks on elections. And so this week, we'll be covering the current state of democracy globally. So that includes the growth of authoritarianism, discussing the rise of authoritarian leaders and regimes, including examples of China, Russia, and Turkey. Then we will go through populism. We'll discuss the growth of populist movements, including examples of Brexit. One example within the United States that we discussed previously is President Trump's election. 
And then one other thing we'll discuss with populism is the rise of far-right parties in Europe. And then we'll go through challenges posed by rising nationalism and discuss how nationalism and nationalistic movements are impacting democracy. And then we'll go through examples including India and Israel. So after that, we'll go through the next two points in our understanding of democracy. Our first understanding of democracy is the future of democracy. And then finally, the relationship between democracy and the media. But democracy evolves as our society evolves. And as our society evolves, democracy appalled is right here to bring you with all the updates. So let's get started. Democracy worldwide, it's been challenged by the growth of authoritarianism, populism, and the rising nationalism. And these trends are shaping the political landscape, and they have a significant implication for the future of democracy. In this segment, we'll elaborate on the rise of authoritarian leaders and regimes, the growth of populist movements, and the challenges posed by rising nationalism. And we'll use various examples from various countries so that we can demonstrate this the challenges that are being faced in our current world. So let's start off with the growth of authoritarianism. So Xi Jinping's consolidation of power, I think, I believe he recently just got reelected unanimously by the um, Chinese Communist Party's, the people group, uh, they call it. And it, it, they had about 1,600 members, I believe, that all voted to keep uh, Xi Jinping in power for another five years. No one voted against him. And this is the growth of authoritarianism. It's not because some people disagree with him. It's, be, it, it's not because nobody disagrees with him. It's because nobody's willing to stand up to him because they're scared of the consequences of standing up to someone like Xi Jinping. So Xi Jinping, he strengthened his grip on power by abolishing term limits for the presidency, which essentially allows for him to remain in office indefinitely. This move undermines the democratic principle of checks and balances leading to a concentration of power in the hands of one individual. And then there's the idea of surveillance and censorship. The Chinese government, it's increased its control of the, over the internet and social media, and it's cracked down on dissenting voices and promoting the official narrative. And this is one thing, you know, here in the United States, we don't have a state-run media. We have different media groups that have, you know, maybe they have their own agendas. You know, many times they do. They have their own agendas, but they have their own reporting, unbiased. Sometimes it's biased. But again, they're independent news organizations that we have here in the United States, and we're blessed to have those. But in China, it's not the same. They have their own Chinese-run state media. They have their own social media. This is part of the reason why a country like China, as big as China, is able to maintain one narrative amongst the people to a large degree. Not, not 100% successful. They do have certain protests. But it is widely successful for them to maintain one narrative of what they're doing. And this is why when they crack down on dissenting voices and they have one official narrative, someone like Xi Jinping is able to consolidate power for, for decades, it seems like. He seems like he's going to be a president for his whole lifetime. And I think that that is what will happen. But when you have surveillance and censorship, this is what limits the freedom of speech and the access to information, which are fundamental to the functioning of a, of a crucial, stable democracy. And it's a fundamental belief that has founded our democracy, the freedom of speech, the freedom of assembly, and the freedom of religion. That's, that's what our democracy here in the United States is based on. Another thing with authoritarianism in China is the Uyghur Muslim detention camps. So the Chinese government, it's been accused of detaining over a million Uyghur Muslims in re-education camps in Xinjiang. And the reports of forced labor, indoctrination, and the abuse in these camps have drawn international condemnation. And they raise serious concerns about 
human rights violations under an authoritarian regime. So China, it's clearly having many different issues, but they're able to show that they're they're strong power. And a part of that is because they have an authoritarian government that doesn't have a real democracy. This is someone that's consolidating the power with the president like Xi Jinping consolidating the power, not letting any independent thoughts be formed or new perspectives be formed because there's surveillance and censorship. And then really it's like ethnic cleansing that's happening when you have detaining Uyghur Muslims and then you're re-educating them in these camps. It's horrible what's going on in China. Another example is Russia as another growth of authoritarianism. So Vladimir Putin's power, President Putin's power, it's grown tremendously. Uh, and President Putin's power con- over Russia has been characterized by the suppression of political opposition, control of the media, and manipulation of the electoral process. These actions, they undermine democratic institutions. They create an environment where dissent is stifled. Another key piece of his power is being able to control the narrative. Another piece that we saw in Xi Jinping. And it's a constant throughout authoritarian regimes. It's controlling the narratives because you need the people to believe you. Even when you're an authoritarian regime, if you have a bunch of people that try to revolt, you're going to have problems. Another one when it comes to Putin in, in Russia is the annexation of Crimea. The 2014 annexation of Crimea by Russia, it sparked a conflict with Ukraine and led to international sanctions. So this act of aggression, it demonstrated that dangers of unchecked authoritarianism can lead to instability and conflict. And the annexation of Crimea was a, it was a key point. And this is where Putin really wanted to expand Russia. He always saw the Soviet Union as, as this great big powerhouse. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, he always wanted Russia to grow, grow back to what the Soviet Union was, to that major power in that major land that it had. And Putin, his goal has always been a power grab to get wherever he can. And we saw that with Crimea, we're seeing it with Ukraine now, we've seen it with the country, Georgia in the past. Another one is the interference in foreign elections. So there, we know this very well in the United States, right? So there have been accusations of Russian interference in the electoral process of other countries, including the United States, which highlights the threat that authoritarian regimes, they can pose to democratic processes of other nations. Because... They really don't care what happens. It, what What is the United States going to do to Russia? You know, so they're they're trying to influence as much as they can to to sway the outcome in their favor. What is their favor? I'm not exactly sure. So another country that has, has seen a rise in authoritarianism is Turkey. So so to recap, Erdogan's rule. So their current president Erdogan. Erdogan has increasingly centralized power and cracked down on dissent in Turkey. So critics argue that his actions have eroded democratic institutions and weakened the rule of law. Along with that, he's cracked, on op- cracked down on opposition. So Erdogan's government has arrested journalists, academics, and opposition figures, leading opposition figures, leading to concerns over human rights abuses and an erosion of democratic principles. This crackdown has created a climate of fear and self-censorship, which undermines democratic values. See, another key piece of controlling the narrative. And when you have a climate of self-censorship, that is probably the most scariest thing you can have in a democratic institution, a democratic government. Because when you have a climate of self-censorship, that means you have a climate of limited perspectives. That's really what it means, limited perspectives. And in a democracy where you have limited perspectives, you don't have a true democracy. You don't have a stable democracy. You don't have a successful democracy. Along with that, 
There's the presidential sh- system in, in Turkey. The 2017 referendum, which changed Turkey's parliamentary system to a presidential one, has been further concentrated the power in President Erdogan's hands. And this has reduced the checks and balances necessary for a healthy democracy. So rather than going from a from a presidential one to a parliamentary system, they did the opposite. They went from a parliamentary system to a presidential one where the president has more power. And this president, he's an authoritarian president that doesn't care about checks and balances that are necessary for a healthy democracy. He doesn't care if there's a healthy democracy. He cares if he has power. And this is what we're seeing when you control the narrative. You have you jail these journalists, these academics, opposition figure, figure, uh, figures. You scare the people. And when you scare the people, it, it's hard to... It's hard to have any revolts or anything like that. So the next point I want to go through in understanding uh, the current state of democracy globally is populism, the rise of populism. Populism isn't something new. It's been, a lo- it's been around for a long, long time. And we're seeing different, different forms of it right now. So if you guys remember Brexit, the 2016 referendum, where Brexit it was driven by populist sentiment with concerns over immigration, sovereignty, and economic inequality. So this fueled a desire to leave the European Union, for Great Britain to leave the European Union, to be specific. And this campaign was marked by misinformation and emotional appeals, which undermined a rational democratic debate. Many say that. Another one is political polarization. So Brexit has led to deep divisions within British society, with people identifying more strongly with their leave or remain stance. So leave the EU, leave the EU or remain with the EU rather than traditional party affiliation. So in the United Kingdom, that's conservative and labor parties. So this increased political polarization and it's impacted the functioning of the country's democratic institutions. And it's made it difficult to achieve a consensus on important issues. Again, this is something that we saw when we looked at the current state of democracy in the United States. Political polarization is a key piece that is breaking away our democracy here in the United States. And it's leading to instability abroad as well. So another one that we can look at as a populist sentiment is President Donald Trump's election here in the United States in 2016. So his was a populist appeal. You know, a big part of that was that the middle class here in the United States, they were not being represented enough and they were feeling left out. So Trump's 2016 presidential campaign is marked by anti-establishment rhetoric. So that means, you know, no Washington will drain the swamp. And he tapped into economic anxiety and anti-immigrant sentiment. So his populist message, it resonated with many Americans who felt left behind by the globalization and the political elite, especially as the economy was recovering from the 2008 recession and and a period under President Obama where the banks had a lot of control. And then we look at political polarization once again, because political polarization, if you don't have authoritarianism, we're seeing a rise in political polarization like we've never seen before. So President Trump's presidency, more than any U.S. presidency that I, I know of, has exacerbated political divisions within the United States. I mean, when, when I say more than any that I know of, you know, you can think of the civil wars, but in recent history, I'm talking about. So political polarization to President Trump's presidency, it's, it's really exacerbated these political divisions that we, we already have, you know, but we try to unite around our key pieces that we have together. But his confrontational style and his tendency to undermine democratic norms They've contributed to it to a degree in the erosion of civility and political discourse. And some say that this has weakened public trust in democratic institutions. But some have also said that this has strengthened public trust in democratic institutions because we feel there is someone that's really working for Main Street. Right. And that's something that we've heard time and time again. So whether it's weakened or strengthened the trust in democratic institutions, that's a key piece to look into, because remember, trust is key 
in having a stable and strong democracy. Without a trust in democratic institutions, there is no real democracy. Furthermore, we have the rise of far-right parties in Europe, right? So examples could include France's National Rally, formerly known as the National Front. You have Germany's Alternative for Germany, AFD as they're known, and Italy's Lega Nord, and they've gained ground in recent years. So these parties, they've capitalized on concerns over immigration, economic inequality, and dissatisfaction with the European Union. Their nationalist and anti-establishment messages have resonated with many Americans who feel that their interests are not being represented by traditional political parties. So when you look at an impact on the, its democracy, the rise of far-right parties has led to a shift in political discourse and increased polarization further, posing challenges for democratic institutions in Europe. If you bring this back to what we talked about in the previous week when we look at the United States, so we've seen a rise of far right and far left here in the United States where it's grown such a, a wide variety where you have the Republicans moving more and more towards the right and the Democrats moving more and more towards the left. Where's the middle ground? We're not able to see it. But we did notice that in the state level, we're seeing a little bit more of a consensus building rather than on the national level. You just see complete competition with no one major idea arising and no consensus being built. Are you even being informed? So it's the idea of competition versus consensus versus being informed. And usually you like to have a mixture of that where competition leads to the best ideas emerging and then a mixture of the best ideas leads to a consensus. And then which ultimately leads to with through an overall discussion, you getting informed. But without that, what is the impact on democracy if you have vast political polarizations? It just these parties, they form coalition with these mainstream parties and they legitimize extremist viewpoints and it leads to the erosion of democratic values. When you have vast political polarization, when you have a democracy that isn't working for the people and protecting many of the interests of majority, it gets difficult to look at what are the democratic values that we hold dear to ourselves. Then let's look into a third point in understanding democracy globally, which is um, the, the fact that there are challenges being posed by the rising nationalism. So if we look at India as an example, Hindu nationalism. Under Prime Minister Narendra Modi, the ruling BJP party has pursued an Hindu nationalist agenda, which has led to religious t- tensions and violence, particularly against religious minorities, such as Muslims and Christians. So this goes back to the idea, you know, in the founding of the United States. How do you have majority rule with minority rights? And that's a question that's been posed time and time again. Majority rule, minority rights. It's, so it's important to keep that in mind whenever we have you know, a strong democracy because there will always be a majority that rules, but there will always be a minority as well. So you need to make sure to keep those minority rights. And that's why we have a representative government and it's key to making sure that we protect minority rights. Another one is here in India, the, the erosion of secularism. So critics argue that Modi's government is undermining India's secular constitution and fostering discrimination against religious minorities. It's really anti-ethical to democratic values that promote equal rights and protection for all citizens. So it's a threat to democratic institutions right here because you look at this in the rise of Hindu nationalism, it's raised concerns over the independence of India's democratic institutions, such as the judiciary and the media. These institutions are crucial for maintaining a healthy democracy, but they've come under increasing pressure from the government. So another example is Israel. So Jewish nationalism under the president leadership of President uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel has pursued 
policies that prioritize Jewish nationalism, and as, as such as the controversial nation-state law passed in 2018. This law declares Israel as the nation-state of Jew the Jewish people and downgrades the status of Arabic as an official language. Along with that, there's an erosion of, of democracy. Critics argue that these policies are eroding the democratic values and principles of Israel, marginalizing non-Jewish citizens such as Arab Israelis, and deepening divisions within Israeli society. Along with that, there's an impact on peace efforts, so the rise of nationalism in Israel has also complicated peace negotiations with the Palestinians. So this Palestine-Israel debate, it's been going on for decades, longer than longer than we can remember. As the Israeli government, it, they try to do peace negotiations with the Palestinians forever. And as the Israeli government has continued to expand settlements in the occupied territories, which undermines the prospect for a two-state solution which, with, between Palestine and Israel. When we look at these two countries together, though, I mean, you look at similar ideology, India and then Israel with Hindu nationalism versus Jewish nationalism. And both of these are challenges posed by rising nationalism, where you have majority rule without great minority rights at all. And that's a key problem within democracy, because in a democracy, you need to have majority rule. And that's, of course, a key piece of this. But you also need to make sure to have minority rights, because without minority rights, you're not protecting all the people. And you don't have equal rights. You don't have equal protection. And that's crucial to a healthy democracy. And that's why it's necessary to have a government that protects majority, right, majority rule with minority rights. And that is so crucial to a democracy. And that's not what we're seeing with these two countries in Israel and India. So overall, the current state of democracy globally is facing significant challenges from the growth of authoritarianism. When we look at China with Xi Jinping, with that's going to have an unlimited term limit, basically. And then you have Russia with President Putin that, that's doing whatever he wants and taking over whatever territory he wants. And then you look at Turkey with President Erdogan, who is instilling a, a climate of fear and self-censorship, which is undermining the democratic values greatly worldwide. But one thing that we see in common between the growth of authoritarianism is the fact that they all want to control the narrative and they don't like dissenting opinions at all. And they don't allow it to happen because they live in a world where they create fear. Then we look at populism with Brexit and then President Trump's election, speaking to the people where the people are growing and then the rise of far right parties in Europe. We see that as well. And then we see the challenges posed by rising nationalism, as we just saw with India and Israel, with the rising uh, religious nationalism with majority rule and no minority rights, really. Then you look at overall, I mean, the it's it's the current state of democracy globally, it's facing significant challenges, authoritarianism, populism and rising nationalism. The examples discussed, they highlight the need for vigilance and a robust defense of democratic values in order to protect and preserve democratic institutions worldwide. As we've seen, these trends, they can lead to an erosion of democratic norms. They've increased political polarizations and heightened tensions both within and between countries as well when it comes to international relations. It's crucial for citizens, civil society organizations, and governments to work together to counter these forces and promote democratic values in the face of these challenges. So that's it for the current state of democracy globally. Now let's go to Iran's democratic history. And this is a special shout out to Faye for recommending this. And I believe this will be a really interesting topic. This is your host, Rohan Mova. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about democracy and its impact on the world. This show is all about democracy. This is Democracy Appalled. 
you have any questions about democracy, send us an email at democracyapod at gmail.com. And we'll bring that topic in our next week's session. Remember that email is democracyapod at gmail.com. As we look into the world today, there are few countries that are more intriguing and complex than Iran, truly. Iran's dem democracy's history is particularly fascinating with the rich tapestry of events and movements that have shaped the country over centuries. From the constitutional revolution of the early 20th century to the current political situation, Iran has been marked by a mix of democratic and authoritarian elements. Now we have to take a deep look at Iran's democratic history. It's so interesting. And we'll explore the factors that have shaped this fascinating country. We'll discuss the major events and movements, the key figures involved, and the impact that Iran's democratic history has had on the country's political and social landscape. Whether you're a student of history or simply curious about Iran's complex past, this is something you won't want to miss. So let's get started. The Constitutional Revolution, 1905 to 1911. The Constitutional Revolution of Iran was a turning point in the country's history, marking the first time that the people of Iran were able to participate in government through an elected parliament. The move was led by intellectuals, religious leaders, and political activists who demanded a constitution and a parliament. The revolution resulted in the establishment of Iran's first modern constitution and the first parliament in the Middle East. This marked a significant shift towards a more democratic system of government in Iran. The constitutional period was, however, marked by internal conflict and external pressure, which led to the weakening of parliament and the eventual rise of Reza Shah Pahlavi. So let's go through Reza Shah's reign. But first, the constitutional revolution, it was a key piece in bringing somewhat of a democracy ideology towards Iran because the people wanted to participate in a government through an elected parliament. And this shows the different perspectives coming together and the rise of the first parliament in the Middle East. But it also shows why a stable democracy is necessary to prevent the rise of authoritarianism and issues like that. Because without a strong democratic system, you don't have one that will last for a long time. And that's what we're seeing with Reza Shah's reign. So Reza Shah Pahlavi, he came into power in 1925 after a coup and began a, a program of modernization and centralization. He abolished the parliament and limited political opposition, leading to a period of authoritarian rule. His reign was marked by a number of reforms aimed at modernizing Iran, including the promotion of education, industry, and infrastructure. So it sounds good, right, what he wants to do. But overall, it's not a democratic government, and it doesn't work to the degree a democratic government would work. The first thing he did was abolish the parliament and limited political opposition, which limits perspectives. And that's when you have an issue when it comes to, you know, there may be this and this issue, but you won't realize it because you limit political opposition, you limit perspectives, right? But despite these achievements, he called them, his rule was marked by repression and a lack of political freedom, a lack of real rights. And when we talked about human rights in one of the previous ones, we talked about the freedom of speech, the freedom of expression, the freedom of religion, the freedom of assembly, which are so crucial, none of which they have here. Reza Shah's authoritarian rule eventually led to the widespread dissatisfaction and his eventual overthrow by the Allies during World War II. This shows that authoritarian rule, it may be working for some time, but it doesn't work forever. We see this with instability happening quickly. And Reza Shah's reign was marked by instability, it was marked by repression, and that can only last for a certain period of time. So then we go to 1951. In 1951, Prime Minister Mohammad Mosaddegh nationalized Iran's oil industry, which had been controlled by British companies. 
This move angered the British and led to a coup orchestrated by the CIA and MI6, which uh, overthrew Mossadegh and restored the Shah to power, Reza Shah, again, the authoritarian rule. Mossadegh nationalization of the oil industry was seen as a bold move towards greater economic independence for Iran. But the coup that followed marked a significant setback for Iran's democratic aspiration. So again, it doesn't mean that all the democratic countries are going to support other democratic countries. They look out for their own self-interest. So again, when you have a democracy, you need to have a strong democracy. You need to have a strong, you need to have a stable democracy and you need to have a strong people to support that democracy. Because otherwise you have issues like this where the democracy is unable to withstand foreign pressure. So let's go to 1979 when we look at the Islamic Revolution. So the Islamic Revolution led by Ayatollah Khomeini overthrew the monarchy of Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, right? And established an Islamic Republic. The new uh, government was based on the principles of Shia Islam and included a constitution and an elected parliament. The revolution was uh, driven by a mix of popular unrest, religious fervor, and political opposition to the Shah's regime. The new Islamic Republic faced many challenges, including the war with Iraq, internal political conflicts, and economic difficulties. Despite these challenges, the Islamic Republic has maintained in power ever since, marking a significant shift towards a more Islamic and less democratic system of government in Iran. And then let's go to the reform movement in, from 1997 to 2005. The reform movement, it was a period of political and social liberalization in Iran under the president of Mohammad uh, Khatami. Khatami implemented reforms aimed at expanding civil liberties, promoting democracy, and improving relations with the West. The reforms included greater press freedom, the release of political prisoners, and the promotion of women's rights. However, Khatami faced significant opposition from conservative elements within Iran's go government, which limited the effectiveness of his reforms. Despite these challenges, the reform movement marked a significant step towards greater political and social freedom in Iran. Then in 2009, we look at the Green Movement. The Green Movement was a series of protests and demonstrations that followed the disputed presidential election of 2009. The movement was led by opposition candidates who claimed that the election was rigged in favor of the incumbent, Mohammad Ahmadinejad. The protests were met with a harsh crackdown by the government, with many protesters arrested and some killed. Despite this, the Green Movement marked a significant moment of political uh, opposition in Iran, with many Iranians calling for greater political freedom and democracy, something new within the country. Uh, when we look at the current political situation in Iran, it, it is still a complex democracy with a mix of authoritarian and democratic elements. So, right, the, it, it's a political system that remains very complex. The country has an elected president and a parliament, but the ultimate power rests in the, uh, with the supreme leader who is appointed by a council of religious leaders. So you see that Islamic power taking over again, like we talked about when it came with Ayatollah Khomeini. So political opposition, it's limited, and human rights abuses continue to be a concern. The current government's policies have been marked by tensions with the West, particularly over its nuclear program and economic difficulties. Despite these challenges, there are signs of growing opposition and demands for greater political freedom and democracy in Iran. The future of Iran's democracy remains uncertain, but the country's complex history offers important lessons for understanding its current political situation and the challenges it faces in the years ahead. Overall, Iran is very complex, but it's a very interesting history as we've seen. And it's gone from 
people wanting wanting a democracy with a constitutional revolution and then getting one. But then when you don't have a stable democracy with the people fully involved, you you lose the democracy, as we saw with Reza Shah's raid and the rise of authoritarianism. But then we saw a rise in parliament again, right? Because the people wanted it back and it came back. But then again, it wasn't stable and strong enough to withstand foreign influence. Foreign influence from democratic nations itself, but it went back to authoritarianism. And that's something that we don't like to see. And to this day, because of that, you look at the the growth in the role of Islamic Republic, where you have more Islamic and less democratic systems of government in Iran. And that's something that we're seeing when it comes to, while there is a president and parliament, the power rests in the supreme leader who's appointed by a council of religious leaders, right? So you're seeing that all this ties in together. So things that happened hundreds of years ago, they still affect us today. And that constitutional revolution, it was a key piece in turning the tide in Iran. But without a stable democracy, it couldn't withhold all the power. And today, current Iran's political situation, it is complex. It's very complex, and it's a mix of authoritarianism and democratic elements. So next, we'll look into bank runs and a run on democracy. This is your host, Rohan Movan. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about democracy and its impact on the world. This show is all about democracy. This is Democracy Appalled. If you have any questions about democracy, send us an email at democracyappalled at gmo.com, and we'll bring that topic in our next week's session. Remember that email is democracy appalled at gmo.com. Let's get into it. The recent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, due to a sudden rush of withdrawals highlights the importance of confidence in financial institutions. What else needs a high high level of confidence? Democratic institutions. A loss of confidence can cause mass panic and lead to a failure of a bank, as we've seen with SVB. You know, any bank, you know, SVB just happens to be the what happened in this past week. But this could really happen to any bank. If any bank, you need to take out 40% of their customers asked to take out their money at one time, it's going to cause a bank run. Similarly, the confidence in democratic institutions and governments is crucial for their stability and functioning. In this segment, we'll discuss the parallels between the bank run on SVB and the potential dangers of a run on democracy. So let's first go into the importance of confidence. So first, looking at confidence in banks, you know, you need to have trust and solvency. Depositors need to go to trust that banks can meet their financial obligations and will not go bankrupt. And then there's the perception of stability. A bank's perceived stability helps maintain confidence in its ability to protect depositors' funds. We've heard this many times where perception is so key in many different industries. Banking is no different, and democracy is also no different. Third, we have the role of regulators, right? So the role of regulators, the regulatory bodies such as the Federal Reserve play a critical role in ensuring the stability of financial institutions and maintaining public confidence in banking systems. And then we have confidence in democracy, right? So that parallels it, confidence in banks, confidence in democracy. So there's trust in democratic institutions. Citizens need to trust that their democratic institutions such as the judiciary, the legislature, and the executive branch are functioning effectively and fairly. And then there's the perception of legitimacy. A government's perceived legitimacy is essential for maintaining public confidence in its ability to govern and address the needs of all its citizens. So the perception, once again, is key, no different than the banks. And then there's the role of media and civil society. A free and independent media, as well as an engaged civil society, play critical roles in holding governments accountable and maintaining public trust in democratic processes. 
which is why journalism is known as the fourth estate, and it's so important. It keeps a check on the government, it's a watchdog for the people, and it reports back the information to the people, maintaining a trust in the government. And that's why free and independent media is so crucial, not state-run media like we've seen in the authoritarian regimes in China and Russia and so on. And then there are the dangers of a mass panic, right? So in a bank, that's an issue. In the democracy, that's also an issue. So bank runs and financial instability. So there can be a domino effect. A run on one bank can lead to a loss of confidence in other banks, potentially causing a chain reaction that destabilizes the entire financial system. And then there are economic consequences to that. Bank failures, they don't just affect the banks. They don't just affect Wall Street. Wall Street affects Main Street. And we've seen that time and time again. In 2008, I watched a real documentary and it showed Wall, they had to bail out Wall Street to save Main Street because Wall Street has such a dramatic impact on their effects on Main Street. So bank failures can have severe economic consequences leading to job losses, reduced credit availability, and decreased consumer spending. Because banks hold all the many money that the consumers give, they're basically controlling the people. Along with that, the banks they they hold the power to you know change the markets and so on that's why it's so important that bank failures don't happen at such and have a domino effect that's why the economic consequences can be so severe and then sometimes government intervention like we've saw in the 2008 recession in some cases governments may need to step in to stabilize the financial system which can be costly and further erode public confidence and then so if you look at this where you have a dangers of a mass panic and then you look at it in the sense of a democracy you have a loss of confidence in democracy what happens you have political instability and we saw this with iran we saw it with other countries as well political instability a loss of public confidence in democratic institutions can lead to political instability with protests social unrest and even the rise of authoritarian leaders there's also the erosion of democratic values widespread disillusionment with democratic processes can lead to the erosion of democratic values and principles such as the freedom of speech equal representation and the rule of law, which is why it's so important that we have a confident confidence in democracy. But if you don't have the democratic values, how do you have a confidence in de democracy? But again, if you have a mass panic, you will have a great loss in democracy. And the international consequences can be vast for that because a decline in the confidence in democracy can it can have great international ramifications as it may embolden authoritarian regimes and weaken global alliances that rely on shared democratic values. Which is why one of the things that I've looked into is if you look at World War One or other world wars, is there was there a necessity for it to become a world war? Or was it because the alliances were just so strong that everyone just had to get pulled into the war at some point? Because, you know, we're we're in alliance with them, so we gotta we gotta help our help out our buddy. So could that be it, or is it just protecting self interest? That's something we can look into in another episode. We should also look into safeguarding confidence in democracy. Now that we look at what a loss in confidence could mean, we need to make sure how can we safeguard democratic institutions. So one is strengthening democratic institutions, right? So how do we do that? That's increasing transparency, ensuring transparency as well. So transparent decision-making processes can help build trust in public government actions and democratic institutions. And when you build trust, you build public confidence. And when you build public confidence, you don't have a mass panic and you have a strong democratic institution. Also, promoting accountability. So holding public officials and politicians accountable for their actions can restore public confidence in democratic institutions, right? So if, you, if you're holding the people accountable that, that are working 
or not working for you, you know, that is the strength of a democracy. You hold your officials accountable. And that's why the journalism and the media is so important as well as, as the fourth estate, because they're the watchdog for the people. They hold the public officials. They hold the government officials accountable. And then they report back to the people. And what do the people do? They hold the pol uh, polit political politicians accountable again at the ballot box every every year or every two years, every four years, whatever, the every election cycle. We know it. And then along with that, to strengthen our democracy, you encourage civic participation. So engaging citizens in democratic processes such as voting and public consultation, that can reinforce the perception of legitimacy and foster public trust in democracy. So whether that be public speeches, whether that be events, whether that be uh, um, public forums, you know, all these different ways to encourage civic participation, that can help increase trust in government so much. Along with that, fostering a culture of trust. And how do we do that? One way is through media literacy. You know, we've talked about this in previous episodes, especially in the current state of democracy in the United States. Promoting media literacy can help better citizens evaluate the credibility of information sources and reduce the spread of misinformation, which can undermine public confidence in democratic processes. Along with that, there's education. So teaching the importance of democratic values and principles in schools can help foster a culture of trust and civic responsibility among future generations. Finally, dialogue and civil discourse. Encouraging open dialogue and civil discourse can help bridge divides, reduce polarization, and promote greater understanding between different segments of society. So what have I always said? I've always said, you talk it out. You talk it out, you build your perspectives together, and you're able to be stronger. You know, whether it's with like-minded or not so like-minded individuals, by talking, you always are able to get closer. I truly believe that. If you have a strong dialogue, if you're in a healthy conversation, you need to make sure they're healthy, though. Otherwise, it'll just erode our democratic institutions. But democracy is built on the backs of people who talk, who are able to build a civic discourse. Looking at it historically, let's look at a few instances where loss of confidence has led to a significant political and social upheaval. Right now, we've looked at it from a theory standpoint, but let's look at it in the context of history. So the Great Depression, we're all very familiar with that. It happened in 1929, the stock market crash from 1929. It led to a confidence in the financial systems and the American economy. As banks failed and businesses closed, millions of people lost their jobs, leading to widespread poverty and social unrest. What was one of the reasons that in 2008 they bailed out the big banks? Oh, an issue was, wow, it might go to a depression. But the economic turmoil of the Great Depression, it paved the way for the rise of authoritarian leaders in Europe such as Adolf Hitler in Germany and Benito Mussolini in Italy, right? When you have such distraught, distraught things that are going on in your country, and this was not just a United States problem. This was internationally as well. The economy was in shambles internationally as well, especially in Europe with uh, Adolf Hitler with um, because they had, to do, they had to pay a bunch of reparations back then. So they had issues internationally with depressions, not just in the United States. And that led to the rise of authoritarian leadership because in times of struggle, if authoritarian leaders are able to say, I'm able to change this, and you just need to rally around me. It's, it's a lot easier to have see a rise in authoritarian leaders during that time. And the democratic governments of the time, they struggled to respond effectively to the crisis. And as a result, many people lost faith in democracy, returning to authoritarian ideologies for stability and security, which is why it's so scary when, when there is something like a Great Depression that can change the way democratic institutions behave. Uh, another one is the Weimar Republic in 1919 to 1933-ish. The Weimar Republic was Germany's first attempt at establishing a democratic government after World War, World War I. Uh, 
However, the new government faced numerous challenges, including hyperinflation, political violence, and social unrest. The economic turmoil of the Great Depression further undermined public confidence in the Weimar Republic, leading to the rise of extremist parties and eventually the ascent of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi power party to power. The collapse of the Weimar Republic it demonstrated the dangers of a loss of confidence in democratic institutions and the potential for authoritarian forces to exploit such situations, which is why a loss of confidence in democratic institutions is so, so scary. Along with that, another example, we can date it back to way back when, when we had the fall of the Roman Republic. The Roman Republic, it was a period of relative stability and democratic governance in ancient Rome. However, over time, social divisions, economic inequality, and political corruption eroded public trust in the Republic institutions. And this loss of confidence contributed to a series of civil wars and political crises, ultimately leading to the rise of Julius Caesar and the transition to the Roman Empire, such as Augustus Caesar. And the fall of the Roman Republic highlights the importance of maintaining public trust in democratic institutions and the potential consequences of allowing political divisions and corruption to fester. Another one, the final one we'll look at for today is the Argentine economic crisis, which happened around 1998 to 2002. The Argentine economic crisis was characterized by severe economic contraction, high unemployment, and a run on the banks that led to the freezing of bank accounts. The crises severely eroded public confidence in Argentina's democratic institutions and the government's ability to manage the economy. The ensuing political unrest and protests led to the resignation of several presidents in quick succession, further destabilizing the country's political landscape. The Argentine crisis demonstrates the potential for economic turmoil to undermine confidence in democratic institutions and trigger political instability. So these historical examples, they underscore the importance of maintaining political confidence in democratic institutions and the potential consequences of allowing trust to erode. They serve as a reminder of the need to address the underlying issues that contribute to a loss of confidence, such as economic inequality, political corruption, and the social divisions in order to safeguard the stability and resilience of democracy. And we see the great impact that economic crises have on democracy. And we've seen that time and time again, because what is the number one self-interest of the people? It goes back to the money, because in, in order to have a place to live, in order to get the food they need, in order to support their family, people need the money. And economic crises, bank failures, they all affect this. And this is why it's so severe to have a stable democracy. It's critical to have a stable democracy. It's so important. So right now we look at the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, and it serves as a reminder of the fragility of co the confidence in institutions, whether it be financial or political. Just as a loss in the confidence in a bank can lead to its downfall, so too can a decline in trust in democratic institutions. They pose a significant risk to the stability and functioning of our political systems. Uh, trust is always key, whether it be in relationships with one another, whether it be to the people, whether it be to anything. Trust in democratic institutions is critical. Trust in banks is critical, which is why trust should always be the building block of a great foundation. And it's, a, it's the most important building block of a great democracy. To protect and strengthen democracy, we must work together to foster trust in democratic institutions, promote transparency and accountability, and encourage civic participation. By doing so, we can help prevent dangerous a run on democracy and ensure its continued resilience in the face of various challenges, which is why it's so important that democracy relies on every single one of us, every single one of us, because we must be engaged. We, the people, 
must be for our democracy and our democratic values always. This is your host, Rohan Mova, and if you're just tuning in, we are talking about democracy and its impact on the world. This show is all about democracy. This is Democracy Appalled. If you have any questions about democracy, send us an email at democracyappalled at demo.com, and we'll bring that topic in our next week's session. Remember that email is democracyappalled at demo.com. Now, let's get into the current affairs. Let's look at Georgia. Not Georgia the state here in the United States, but Georgia the country. So recent events in Georgia, a country located in the Caucasus region, where the ruling Georgian dream, GD party, has introduced legislation that would label civil society and media organizations receiving substantial funding from foreign services sources as foreign agents, right? So if you have a civil society or media organization that gets a bunch of its funding from, let's say, the United States or China, then they'd be labeled as foreign agents. So this legislation is reminiscent of Russia's Foreign Agents Act, which has been criticized for violating freedom of association and assembly and hindering the country's civil sector. So the freedom of association and assembly, it's again, it, that's one of the critical democratic values that we have, freedom. The proposed law in the country of Georgia has sparked massive protests, leading to the temporary uh, government temporarily withdrawing the legislation. So connecting these events to democracy today, we look at the importance of civil society and media organizations. Civil society and media organizations, they play a critical role in maintaining a healthy democracy by serving as watchdogs holding governments accountable, and providing a platform for diverse voices. When these organizations are targeted or stifled, it can significantly weaken the democratic process. Then we look into the erosion of democratic institutions. The Georgian case highlights the risk of the erosion of democratic institutions by governments, in this case, by the Georgian Dream Party, right? So democratic institutions by government happens. And this is why I've always said you need to have faith from the leaders in democratic institutions. They need to believe in democracy and they must help democracy to they must foster democracy. When ruling parties undermine the independence of the judiciary, the media and civil society organizations, it can significantly weaken the foundations of a democracy because that is the leadership for a democracy. But the people, they can always change that. And we saw that with the protests here in Georgia, in the country of Georgia. And the influence of foreign powers also plays a big role. The role of Russia in promoting anti-democratic practices in Georgia is extremely concerning. The similarities between the proposed Georgian law and Russia's Foreign Agents Act demonstrates the potential impact of foreign powers on democratic processes in other countries. But then there is public response and citizen activism, right? So the massive protests in Georgia against the proposed legislation shows the power of public response and citizen activism in safeguarding democratic values. The temporary withdrawal of the legislation is a testament to the importance of public engagement in defending democracy. Just to emphasize again why this legislation is bad, I mean, it's been criticized for violating freedom of association assembly because it hinders the country's civil sector. Because if a company is getting its funding from outside money, let's say the United States, they're labeled as foreign agents. That hinders the civil sector and businesses within the country of Georgia greatly. And then when we look at international support for democracy, so the situation in Georgia, it underscores the need for international support for democracy. Right now, we look at one example for international support of democracy, and that's in the news a lot, right? It's Ukraine. And you see all these different countries like the United States giving aid, Great Britain giving aid, and that's their way of playing into the global sphere. 
But it's not just Ukraine. There are many other situations where democracy is being hindered and international support for democracy is warranted. The situation in Georgia, it shows that democracy, international support for democracy, particularly from the United States and European nation, is needed. By raising pressure on the Georgian government to implement democratic reforms and supporting civil society organizations, international actors, they can play a role in protecting democracy in vulnerable countries. And we've seen that time and time again, foreign influence. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. In this situation, it can be good, possibly. And then we look at the significance of upcoming elections, because how do we how do people hold the governments accountable? Democratic elections. The 2024 24 parliamentary elections in Georgia will be crucial moment for the country's democratic trajectory. It is essential for Georgian voters to exercise their democratic rights and make informed decisions to reject anti-democratic policies and practices. So that's why democracy is so important, because it holds the people accountable once more. Let's now look into Israel. Israel is one that we've looked into as our current affairs topic a couple times in the past. But nonetheless, it is extremely interesting. This time, Israel could become a constitutional democracy. So Israel is currently experiencing a debate over judicial reform and the establishment of a formal constitution. The debate has been sparked by competing proposals from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's Religious Zionist Coalition and President Isaac Herzog's consultative people's framework, as he calls it. And this discussion could potentially resolve constitutional issues that have been present since the nation's founding in 1948. As Israel approaches its 75th anniversary, the country is considering addressing its national identity crisis, which revolves around balancing its dual nature as a Jewish state and a multicultural democracy. Israel currently operates with 13 basic laws that serve as a quasi-constitutional framework. However, it lacks a formal constitution that clearly defines the roles and powers of its main institutions and the rights of its citizens. So getting one could be very beneficial. The ongoing debate will likely touch upon the role of religious laws and their interactions with civil obligations, as well as the role of the rabbinate and religious law and civil society. And we saw this example earlier this episode with majority rule with minority rights through Jewish nationalism and how to achieve that within Israel. One proposal is a unique constitutional solution, perhaps in the form of an American-style separation of powers, which could emerge from the current political debate. This could also lead to a more inclusive process that involves all inhabitants and stakeholders in a religiously diverse and multicultural Israel. So let's look at its connection to democracy today. The importance of a formal constitution, Israel is a unique case as it is a legislative democracy with 13 quasi-constitutional basic laws, but it doesn't have a formal unitary constitution. Formal constitution could help define the roles and powers of the main institutions of the state and human and civic voting rights, strengthening Israel's democracy. Along with that, balancing religious and secular values, one of the main challenges in Israel is reconciling its Jewish identity with its multicultural democratic values. And that's something that we saw earlier this episode. Again, constitutional debate could help address this issue by finding a balance between secular and religious Jews over the role of religious laws and their relationship with civil obligations. Along with that judicial appointments, the competing proposals from Prime Minister Netanyahu's government and President Herzog's consultative framework both aim to address the appointment of Supreme Court justices a balanced framework that represents the country's democratic tradition and consults legal professionals that can help strengthen the democratic process along with checks and balances. Along with that, there are constitutional rights for non-citizen residents. 
extending constitutional rights to Israeli residents who are not citizens, including Palestinians, is a sensitive challenge. Finding a way to balance the rights of all inhabitants while addressing security concerns is essential for a more inclusive and democratic society. Along with that, we look at the separation of powers, where you could have an American-style separation of powers adapted for Israel's unique needs. This could empower the legislative and executive branches to handle specific responsibilities, promoting a more balanced and effective democratic system. Overall, for Israel to establish a full-fledged constitution that is able to address their, their crucial issues within their democracy, within their society, it would be great for the country and a big step forward for democracy. So let's answer the age-old question, like we do every episode. Is democracy appalled or is democracy prevailing? You know, this week, I think democracy to a great part is prevailing. I really do. Because when you look at Israel, this is a great step from what we've seen. Because in past, we've seen Israel and the executive branch try to take too much power over the judiciary branch. That's something that this constitution could address. And them having conversations between different frameworks with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu proposing something and then President Isaac Herzog proposing something else. And both these people working together and their parties working together, the government's working together in order to get a constitutional democracy. It could be a great step forward for Israel. I really think so. And this could be their necessary step in, in getting peace in the area. And that's something they may not achieve it, but it's a great step forward in finding the identity of Israel and addressing those major problems. And in Georgia, the country of Georgia, we see some issues where there is some legislation that, that is influenced by foreign actors like Russia, and it doesn't promote freedom of association and assembly. So it's kind of going against the democratic values really today. But then we saw the importance of civil society in democratic institutions with the people speaking out and the people protesting and the people getting that legislation withdrawn temporarily for now, but it could be permanent. So it's important to remember the role of, that people can play in a democracy. And we're looking at that with the country of Georgia. And there are other examples we've seen where democracy has faced challenges in the global scale today, where whether it's be with polarization or whether it be with challenges posed by rising nationalism, such as Hindu nationalism and Jewish nationalism, as we saw in India and Israel. So those are great challenges. And along with populism and authoritarianism, as we saw with China and Xi Jinping and Russia with Vladimir Putin and Turkey with President Erdogan. So those are all issues that we've seen with democracy, but there's great strength in our democracy and there's a great strength in what the democracy can achieve. And we're looking at that in our current events right now. And democracy will continue to evolve as society evolves. And I'm confident that democracy is prevailing this week and it will continue to prevail. Even though it has its hurdles, democracy overall is prevailing and it will prevail. Thank you for listening to this episode of Democracy Appalled, and I'm your host, Rohan Mova. This show is all about democracy. This is Democracy Appalled, live from 1490 WWPRAM every Monday at 5 a.m. Eastern. Catch us right here every Monday at 5 a.m. If you have any questions about democracy, send us an email at democracyappalled at gmo.com, and we'll bring that topic in our next week's session. Remember, that email is democracyappalled at gmo.com. In next week's episode, we'll look into another country, and if you have any suggestions, email us at democracyapart at gmo.com. And then we'll also expand our understanding of democracy by understanding the future of democracy. What could the future of democracy possibly hold? We'll also look at current affairs and more. Tune in right here live at 1490 WWPRAM every Monday at 5 a.m. Eastern. Look forward to seeing you soon and have a great day and a great week. Thank you.